Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 41, Like Cambodia, Like Clown. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Reconcile when we reconcile. Not mean things literally when we not mean things literally, I think. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 6, Like Father, Like Clown. It originally aired on October the 24th, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about the Cambodian-Vietnamese War, a conflict that came to an end following the signing of the Paris Peace Accords on October 23rd, 1991, the day before Like Father, Like Clown was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, October 24th, 1991, but Gareth, I hear you ask... Who's number one in the... It's Brian Adams. Still. Why have you not got this by now? It's Brian Adams. And number two this week is one of the most early 90s acts in existence, and not even that could dislodge the might that is Brian Adams. Yes, at number two this week sit Too Unlimited with Get Ready For This. Nice. So my reaction to this was, oh my God, it's that one. Tom, do you know the song I'm talking about here? Get Ready For This. Yes. It's not what the one that goes, y'all ready for this? Da, 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 da. No? The very same, yes. Oh, it is? So okay. I, so I didn't actually recognise it from the title, but as soon as I stuck it on, I was like, yep, yeah, my God, that, that takes me back. So, um, yeah, genuinely didn't know it was Too Unlimited that were responsible for this. Uh, it does have a, a touch of the Babylon zoos about it, in that it quite quickly goes from the exciting bit that you know about into some much less engaging verses. Um, but yeah, it's fair to say I was taken aback. Obviously, I'm aware of some of their later work, but this contains one of the genuinely iconic riffs in EDM history. I just had no idea it was them, um, and I had no idea they had it in them, for that matter. Um, but who are they? Well, this popular beat combo consists of rapper Ray, I'm going to say Slingard, uh, and Anita Doth, both of whom are Dutch. Oh, and Belgian producers Jean-Paul de Costa and Phil Wilde, uh, who one assumes did the lion's share of the Sonic work. Now, de Costa and Wilde have previously collaborated under the name of Biz Niz, um, a lot of double Zs in there, and released a song called Don't Miss the Party Line, which had gone top ten over here. They had Get Ready for This Ready to Go as an instrumental when they decided a vocal would make it work better. And they got in touch with their old buddy Ray, who'd worked with them when they were business. Um, and when the, he sent the tape back to them, it also had Anita on it, uh, who was apparently working as a traffic warden at the time. Um, and the producers were chuffed with the results and out it went. Uh, it peaked at number two in the UK, where you'd have to think once again that without Brian Adams's continued presence, it would have hit number one. Uh, it also got to number two in Spain and Austria. They will do an awful lot better than this in three singles time. Although Tribal Dance, the direct follow up to this, also went to number two in the UK and number one in the Netherlands. I believe we'll be hearing about their greatest commercial triumph when we hit the end of season four. So 
get ready for that. Do 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 do. Sorry, sorry. It's it's got a hold on me that song. It really has. Yeah. Um, the U.S. viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of twelve point seven, and it was the highest rated show on Fox that week. The production number is 8F05, and the credited writers were Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski, as we discussed in episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey. The chalkboard gag is that Bart should be writing, I will finish what I start, but in a delicious irony, it stops mid-word. And the couch gag is Bart lounges across the laps of the rest of the family. And what happens in this episode? The Simpsons are going to lay some continuity on us. Krusty is just finishing off his show for the day and instructs his long-suffering assistant, Lois Pennycandy, to cancel all of his appointments, including dinner with one Bart Simpson, the boy who saved him from jail in Season 1, Episode 12, Krusty Gets Busted. It seems he's cancelled a fair few times in the past, causing Bart to return his Krusty fan club badge in disgust. This, in turn, disgusts Miss Pennycandy, who strong-arms Krusty into attending the dinner the next night at the expense of missing Schnapp's night at the Friars Club, via a nice callback to Krusty's illiteracy, which will eventually be forgotten about for no apparent reason. So the family get all dressed up and ready to go. Millhouse arrives, by a massive coincidence, and Krusty starts with his usual shtick, until Lisa tells him he doesn't have to be on, leaving Homer to lament not getting to see a monkey that he blatantly did see. (laughs) Then when Krusty says grace in Hebrew, we learn that he is of the Jewish faith. Unfortunately, this brings back memories of his childhood and an acrimonious relationship with his father, as we then see in flashback. His father wanted him to join the long line of men in the family to become rabbis, but when young Herschel Krustovsky found the pull of entertaining too alluring and became a clown, he was disowned by his father, Rabbi Hyman Krustovsky, after a mix-up saw Krusty booked to entertain a rabbinical conference to which the latter was invited. Krusty thoroughly outstays his welcome at The Simpsons, and it becomes clear he is a very lonely man with nowhere really to go. When his tragic past begins to affect his work, Bart and Lisa feel the need to step in, initially by doorstepping the rabbi, which goes about as well as you'd imagine, then calling in to gabbit about God, KBBL Radio's Interfaith Forum. So Bart then disguises himself as a Hasidic Jew to harass Rabbi Krusovsky in the park. When that doesn't work, he sets up a meeting at Izzy's Deli by telling Krusty he's getting the French Legion of Honor and the rabbi that he's meeting Saul Bellow. Unfortunately, the latter storms out when he sees the Krusty the Clown sandwich on the menu, which is somewhat less than kosher. Tom, can you remember the ingredients of that sandwich? Uh, pork, ham and sausage with a smidge of mayo on white bread. Very, very close. It's described as ham, sausage and bacon, but to be oh, honest... Ham, You've covered it with pork, really. It's, uh, oh, exactly. As indeed did they with the sandwich. Exactly. Um, exactly. Three ingredients from one magical animal, anyway. <laughs> but you're quite right. It's with a smidge of mayo on white bread. Having realised that rabbis prize knowledge above all else, including those stupid hats, Bart's words, not mine, Lisa hunkers down at the library and provides material for Bart to spring on the rabbi at inconvenient times, such as a chess match and a bris. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure how he managed to get into that one. But they're no experts, and the rabbi has them snookered until Lisa pulls out one last ace as she's not learning ancient Hebrew. And the rabbi is moved by a quote from Sammy Davis Jr. And thinking he may just have this turned on its head, he reconciles with his son live on the Krusty the Cloud show, 
giving us a nice happy ending. Wow, absolutely rattled through that. It's it, it, I don't want to make it sound like it doesn't fill out its running time properly. It does. It's just kind of the you know if you're sketching the major events, there's one basically. So um, yeah, but the running time is taken up by some some great jokes. I I absolutely love this one. So would you like to hear about some character debuts? Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Perhaps unsurprisingly, debuting in this episode is Rabbi Hyman Krustowski, as played by Jackie Mason, who I'm just going to do a quick career recap on, as he's one of those ones where I knew I knew him, but not why I knew him or where from. And mm. perhaps some of our listeners will be in the same boat, and this will be useful, or they won't be, and this won't be. Still, it's something to do, in it? So let's go. Mason was born in 1928 and was a respected stand-up comedian and television actor. Much like Krusty, and this was probably written in as a tribute, one would think, an incident on television would see him struggle to get regular TV work for some years, as he was accused of giving Ed Sullivan the finger. It was later proved that he didn't, but it sounds like Sullivan badmailed him to all his industry contracts, leading to a, a, a blacklisting of sorts. Also, much like Krusty, he was from a family line of rabbis, the difference being that Mason was actually ordained at one point. Confusingly, for me anyway, he's also still alive, as I thought he was dead. Uh, but we'll get to why that is in a minute. Um, so Mason voices the rabbi in several episodes, with Dan Castellaneta voicing the character in several others. But sources vary as to which ones. Um, I, I think it's the following ones that Jackie Mason's in. So season 15, episode six, Today I Am a Clown, which deals with Krusty's Bar Mitzvah and also guest stars Mr. T. At season 21, episode 10, Once Upon a Time in Springfield, in which Krusty falls in love with his new co-presenter. And finally, season 26, episode 1, Clown in the Dumps, in which the rabbi dies. An episode which, incidentally, features the most weird, affecting, scary and sad couch gag ever. Go on, Google Don Hertzfeld couch gag. I dare you. It's a journey. It really is. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why I thought Jackie Mason was dead, because the character I know him from the most is dead. Right. Speaking of the character, well, he's a rabbi, and he's Krusty's dad. And frankly, that's about it. Um, There's no further development of this character as time goes on. Um, it's said that this episode is a parody of The Jazz Singer, a 1927 film where a young man defies the wishes of his Jewish family to become, well, a jazz singer. Don't watch it. There's a lot of blackface in that. Um, but anyway, that's that's why Rabbi Kostrovsky exists. And it was Jay Kogan who is credited with that whole idea. Um, and there's also Lois Pennycandy, the name a reference to a recurring James Bond character, Miss Moneypenny, and the actress who made the role famous, Lois Maxwell. Krusty's long-suffering PA, it is also strongly implied that she holds a torch for him. I like the character, so of course she's only got one more speaking appearance. In Season 4, Episode 22, Krusty gets cancelled, but does appear mutely in a few other episodes and and I was so glad to read this on the Wikipedia entry, has more storylines in the comics. Oh, good. Good. That's what you want to know. (laughs) So, did you know, Tom, Jackie Mason won the 1992 Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Vocal Performance for his portrayal of Rabbi Kostrovsky in this episode? 
I didn't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all because it's it's probably the best piece of casting yet in The Simpsons. Agreed. Agreed. Um, the family album includes a photo of Bart and Homer at Duff Gardens, which Bart, but not a sandwich-poisoned Homer, will visit again in Season 4, Episode 13, Selma's Choice. So they've already had a day out with Surly, Remorseful, and the other Duffs that I can't remember. Tipsy was one, I think. Queasy. Mm. Wow, I'm up to four. Mm-hmm. But really, I should have done the research. Anyway, the adult movie theatre is showing the following parody movies. For Your Thighs Only, based on 1981 James Bond movie For Your Eyes Only. Crocodile Don Me, the weakest of the three to my mind, based on the inexplicably popular 1986 adventure flick Crocodile Dundee. And by far my favourite, Doctor Strange Pants based on Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Caring and Learned to Love the Bomb, a Stanley Kubrick classic from 1964 that I still haven't seen. Have you not? No, no. Oh, that's, that's something to do in lockdown. Watch watch Dr. Strangelove. It's great. Well, it's going to have to get behind Citizen Kane in the queue, obviously, but yeah. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I guess I do have more time on my hands. Good point, Tom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that is me, would you believe? Bit of a Bit of a shorter stint from me today. Um, yeah. So what you got for us? You didn't even give me the chance to roll out my Jackie Mason impression. Ah, oh, um, <laughs> would would you like to roll out your Jackie Mason? Go on, impression? Go on. It, it, it's it's just it's just so much fun to go. Hushu, hushu, I I go out. It's great. But but yeah, one of the little oh. things I love in this episode is 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 how self refer is how self referential it is. So when when Rabbi Krostovsky's sitting in the deli reading through all the different sandwich options, he gets to one that's called the Jackie Mason. And he goes, I, I, I don't know, sauerkraut gives me gas. <laughs> it's awesome. Ooh, were there any memeable moments this week? Thanks for asking. No. Oh. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I possibly shouldn't have asked. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've, I've, I've watched it three times trying to go through it with a fine-tooth comb just because it's such a good episode. You just think there must be memeable stuff in there and there's not so so after watching it i went and watched itchy and scratchland which is like wall-to-wall memes can't wait till we get to that one <laughs> excellent it's almost like you were calibrating your sort of targeting there by by taking in the, the most memeable episode arguably of all time and mm-hmm. i like that strategy i like it a lot excellent okay well over to you sir so cambodia right gonna get my serious hat on now talking about Cambodia, because if you've heard the name of Cambodia, it's probably for all the wrong reasons. The country was devastated by the Khmer Rouge, who from 1975 onwards orchestrated the killing fields, where people were killed in literally their millions. So fair warning, this one's going to be a bit heavy. Yes, I might not be doing any uh, comedic interjections on this one. I'll I'll just warn you now. Okay. (laughs) But first, where exactly is Cambodia. It's on the Indochina Peninsula, and it has a south coast on the Gulf of Thailand. It's bordered to the north and west by Thailand. To the south and east is Vietnam, a neighbour who it shares an intertwined history with. To the northwest is the landlocked country of Laos. Vietnam hugs the coast of the South China Sea, and both Vietnam and Laos share their northern borders with China, obviously the regional superpower. And I should warn people again, I'm going to mangle all sorts of Cambodian and Vietnamese pronunciations. I apologize in advance. But 
one pronunciation I do know is the name Kamai. Everyone thinks it's Khmer, as in Khmer Rouge, but apparently it's Kamai. So I really should go back and correct myself when I was saying Khmer Rouge earlier, but uh, I don't think I'm going to be bothered. So. <laughs> so modern Cambodia has its roots in the Khmer Empire, which was founded in 802 AD when the king Jayavarman II unified a handful of kingdoms, declared their independence from Java, which was the occupying power at the time, and was proclaimed Kamratan Jagadtaraja. This term has several translations, including King of Kings, God King, and King of the Entire Universe. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was heavily influenced by Hinduism and believed himself to be divinely appointed. Jayavarman II and his heir expanded their territory and moved the capital several times before settling on Yasodharapura, otherwise known as Angkor, founded by Yasavaraman I in the late 9th century. The kingdom split at the start of the 10th century, but would be reunited 50 years later. Shortly afterwards came its first war against the kingdom of Champa, which was in the territory of what is now Vietnam. So, you know... Cambodia and Vietnam had skirmishes going back about a thousand years. The start of the 11th century saw three kings vying for the control of the Khmer Empire. Suyavarman I would prevail, and his near 50-year reign proved to be highly tumultuous. The empire at the time was bordered by the also Hindu kingdom of Chola, and to the south by the Buddhist kingdom of Srivijaya and Tambralinga. The Khmer Empire formed an alliance with the Chola, who were able to win the war on their southern borders, expanding their territory even further. The year 1113 saw Suryavarman II come to the throne, and he's widely considered to have started the Khmer Golden Age, as he began constructing the great temple complex of Angkor Wat. It took over 30 years to build, and even today, it's the largest religious monument in the world, covering over 400 acres. The central structure is made of sandstone and adorned with pine cone towers. You know, you might have seen it on their flag. The, the aerial view is even more impressive as it shows the complex to be surrounded by a huge and perfectly cut moat. It's one of those things you look at it and it's just so satisfying because it's so square. You know, it, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's amazing to look at. How they did that with the technology of the time is, is absolutely mm. beyond me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really impressive. Remember, this is still the 12th century. So at the time, the Khmer Empire was at war with the Cham Empire, which was based in what is now central and southern Vietnam. In 1177, a Cham fleet sailed up the Tonle Sap Lake and sacked Angkor Wat. The city was not regained until the rule of Jayavarman VII, who ascended to the throne in 1181. He continued the war against the Cham until his armies were victorious in 1203. Now, he was the first Buddhist to rule the Khmer Empire, and he started to build many Buddhist temples. His son, Indravarman II, continued these projects, but his reign saw the empire begin to crumble. In 1220, the powerful Dai Vet formed an alliance with the Cham, and the Khmer lost a lot of territory in the east. In the west, Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, of course, rebelled against the Khmer rulers and became an independent kingdom. From then on, the empire stagnated and declined. By this time, Theravada Buddhism had become the state religion. So there were a few little jumps here and there, but they basically went from being Hindu to being Buddhist. (laughs) 
1372, another capital was founded, this time at Phnom Penh, which remains the capital to this day. And it's got a bit of an odd founding story. So according to local legends, a rich old lady named Penn lived in the area. So Penn's a given name. One day, she was down by the riverbank looking for firewood, and she saw a log floating down the river. She went in and fished it out, and in it she found three statues of the Buddha and one of the Hindu god Vishnu. Penn raised a small hill, and on it she built a shrine to these statues. The Khmer word for hill is Phnom, hence why the city is known as Phnom Penh, Penn's Hill. It's said that the powers that be took this as a divine blessing and built a new city there, making it their capital. Of course, it's got nothing to do with the fact that Angkor was in the north and under threat of invasion. Also, Phnom Penh is very well strategically located, being where the Tonle Sap, Basak and Mekong rivers merge. Yeah, so it's a great place to build a city. Eventually, Angkor Wat was sacked by the Siamese Ayatfaya Kingdom in 1432 and just completely abandoned. It, you know, they let the jungle take over, essentially. So you go to Angkor Wat now and there's still these massive trees that have just like taken over various structures. It's amazing. So in the 16th century, the capital was moved to Longvec on the coast and the royal court brought some wealth into the country by trading with Europeans, most notably the Portuguese. However, this didn't last and the Ayat fire eventually caught up with them, capturing Longvec and forcing them even further south. And with that, Khmer was no longer the dominant power in the region. That honour was split between Siam to the west and Vietnam to the east. Cambodia oscillated as a vassal state between these two powers for centuries. Then in the middle of the 19th century, another player came into the mix, that being France. And the French had had a presence in Vietnam for some time, keen to protect the Christian missionaries who operated there. So from 1859, they attempted to take control of Saigon, the base of power in South Vietnam. Despite strong Vietnamese resistance, the French prevailed and in 1862 signed the Treaty of Saigon with the Vietnamese. The next year, the king of Cambodia, King Norodom, who had been installed by Siam, requested that Cambodia become a French protectorate. France and Siam agreed, exchanging Cambodia for French territories, which then became part of Siam. It was also at this time that Phnom Penh returned to being the capital of Cambodia. France went to war against China in 1882 and gained control of the north of Vietnam and in 1887 united their colonies under the name French Indochina. Uh, and, you know, I saw a joke on the history Facebook page the other day. Uh, Dad, what's Indochina? Well, it's not quite India. It's not quite China. But, but man, <laughs> so to answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> So, well, now we do. Yes. In 1893, France went to war with Siam and took control of the region of Laos. The early part of the 20th century saw more clashes between Siam and France, with various territories being occupied, fought over and exchanged. The territorial extent of French Indochina reached its zenith in 1907, expanding further west into Siam, into a region that is now the western part of Cambodia. So whilst in Cambodia, the French brought Western technology and infrastructure to the country. They built schools, hospitals, all sorts of things, including an airport. So by the 1920s, Phnom Penh was known as the Pearl of Asia, and many of its areas closely resembled Paris. You know, you had a load of rich French people trying to feel more at home. So the French had the ability to manipulate who ascended to the throne of Cambodia. They chose monarchs who would be loyal to them and not too independently minded. 
1941, the throne became vacant and the French chose Norodom Sayanuk to be king. Shortly afterwards, the Japanese invaded and occupied Cambodia until the end of the Second World War. During the war, the balance of power was kind of odd. So the French colonies were administered by Vichy France, which was a puppet state of Nazi Germany and therefore technically an ally of Imperial Japan. However, the Japanese had a policy of Asia for the Asiatics and were largely opposed to European colonialism. However, they tolerated the French colonialists and allowed them to remain there. In the final few months of the war, Cambodia experienced a period of independence under Sihanouk, as neither the French nor the Japanese were there to assert control. Sondagok Fan, the foreign minister, made himself the prime minister. After the war, the French, led by Charles de Gaulle, were determined to reassert themselves in French Indochina and nominally took back control of Cambodia, sending Song Nyokok Fan into exile. The years that followed were pretty chaotic. To remain in power, Sihanouk had to play several powers off against each other, including the French, the Viet Minh and the Khmer Isarak, a guerrilla group who operated near the country's borders. Following a French orchestrated election in 1946, the Democratic Party of Cambodia won a large majority in the country's National Assembly and drew up a constitution based on the French Fourth Republic, making Sayanuk a constitutional monarch. The next few years saw a battle between Parliament and the King, and Cambodia gaining more autonomy from France. In 1951, Sayanuk persuaded the French to release former Prime Minister Sonnegok Fan from exile. He returned to Cambodia and became a prominent and popular politician determined to win Cambodia's independence from France. 1951 also saw the founding of the Communist Party of Cambodia, a party that Sayanuk dismissively called the Khmer Rouge, or Red Khmer's. Of course, the name stuck. In 1952, Sayanuk dismissed the cabinet, declared a state of emergency and dismissed parliament, making himself prime minister. The public mood in Cambodia was one that was yearning for independence. In an attempt to get it, Sayanuk went to France, worried that if he didn't deliver it, then the people may turn to Sonnegok Fen or the Khmer Isarak. In 1953, the French, bogged down in fighting in Vietnam, in particular at their base at Dien Bien Phu, were ready to grant independence to Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos. In Cambodia, Sayanuk was treated like a hero. So after independence, Sayanuk continued to dominate Cambodian politics. In 1955, he did something very odd. He abdicated the throne and his own father, Suramarit, became king. Now, I've never heard of that happening. But let's not That's forget... usually the other way round, isn't it? <laughs> usually, usually. But let's not forget that the French used to decide who became king. And originally, they passed over his father. So it it, it kind of makes sense that you might go, well, my dad never got a turn, so so you know I'll I'll let him have a go. But as he was no longer king, Sayanuk was free to enter the world of politics. He formed his own party, the Sankum, which was in effect a coalition of smaller monarchist parties. They defeated the more anti-monarchist Democrats in the 1955 election, and Sayanuk became prime minister. So he's gone from, you know, hereditary ruler to elected prime minister. Never heard of that happening either. He eventually lost patience with Democrats and many were beaten following a confrontation in 1957. 
The late 50s saw a few attempts on Sinek's life, including a parcel bomb which he suspected the CIA were involved in. He suspected, you see, not, not a huge amount of evidence for that, but anyway. In 1960, Suramarit, Sayanuk's father and king, died after a period of ill health that Sayanuk blamed on the shock of the parcel bomb, it going off in the room next door to his father. Sayanuk proposed a constitutional amendment that would make him the head of state, and it passed by referendum. He took the title of prince and remained head of the government. You know, I, I, I still can't get my head around that. So, so, so this guy, this guy Sayanuk, he's been, he's been king, he, he abdicated, he's now prime minister, and he's now the absolute head of state, but he's calling himself prince. Do you think he's got a bingo card that he's just kind of <laughs> filling out? Yeah, yeah. So... So he's so he's become prince, and meanwhile the war in neighbouring Vietnam was escalating. So after John F. Kennedy and South Vietnamese President Diem were both assassinated in 1963, Sayanuk signed a secret agreement with North Vietnam and the Viet Cong, where Cambodia would allow food and weapons from China to reach them via Cambodia. This was known as the Sayanuk Trail. Once the Americans learned about it, they started bombing it, as they did. Uh, so this led to Sayanuk severing ties with the USA. In 1965, the right-wing former general Lon Nol became prime minister. This didn't sit well with Sayanuk, who was trying to balance the influence of left and right-wing parties. Ironically enough, Lon Nol offered to resign over this, but Sayanuk stopped him from doing so. Later that year, Cambodia fell out with China over communist propaganda being distributed throughout the country. Without China as an ally, Sayanuk tried to get the USA back on side, and he personally gave Jackie Kennedy a tour of Angkor Wat. <laughs> I know those words, but not in that order. It's, yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite the gesture. Bear in mind that President Kennedy had been dead by, for about four years by this point, so it's a, it's a hell of a piece of diplomacy. So by 1970, the Viet Cong was still operating in the jungles of northern Cambodia, much to the chagrin of the USA, of course. There were protests against them on the streets of Phnom Penh, and these protests turned ugly. The National Assembly voted to depose Sayanuk, who was on a foreign trip to Moscow at the time. Lon Nol, the right-wing general, became dictator of Cambodia after taking up emergency powers. Sayanuk had allies, and they encouraged him to form a resistance movement to, to Lon Nol. This movement had one hell of a name, the National United Front of Kampuchea, Kampuchea being an older name for Cambodia, when written in French, it had the acronym FUNK. <laughs> oh, God almighty. <laughs> so, so Sayanuk also formed a government in exile, which had another awesome name. It was the uh, uh, Government Royal, and then all the other stuff. So that had the, uh, that had the acronym GRUNK. So he's, so he's bringing the FUNK and he's bringing the GRUNK. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to, to be fair... Thus far, uh, I, I've been chuckling more than I really should do at Cambodian War. Um, yeah, but 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 it's it's there, you know. You have to dig for it, but it's there. Oh so. yeah, yeah. So in the north of the country, the Khmer Rouge had formed an effective guerrilla fighting force. They were led by Salof Sar, a communist revolution who studied Marxism in Paris and idolized Joseph Stalin. So just like Stalin, Salof Sar took up a nickname that he was more famously known by, that being Pol Pot. So the Americans took Londol's side as he vowed to rid the country of the Viet Cong, because that's all you had to do back then. If you were against 
communism didn't matter if you were a dictator or how ruthless you are or whatever if you were against communism the americans would back you hmm. So by 1975, the Khmer Rouge were in the ascendancy and they besieged Phnom Penh, the last stronghold of Long Nol. The siege lasted the best part of a year, with Khmer Rouge troops finally entering the city on April 17, 1975. As soon as they arrived, the Khmer Rouge brought death and destruction to Cambodia on a scale not seen since the Holocaust. On the auspices of an impending US bombardment, Pol Pot ordered the total evacuation of Phnom Penh, a city at the time had a population of around 2 million. And people died for all sorts of reasons. For a start, there were no exceptions to the evacuations. Even people in their hospital beds were forced out and made to march. So they were all forced to go and live and work in collective farms in the countryside. And under Pol Pot's extreme version of communism, everyone was to be a peasant. Everything considered Western was banned, including medicine. So if you needed Western medicine to keep you alive, well, tough. Thousands died from malaria. Even people who wore glasses were targeted as they were seen as a sign of intellectualism. The regime was highly racist and thousands from various ethnic minorities were systematically killed. Dissent was not tolerated and anyone suspected of doing so was either shot in the street or taken to a camp to be tortured. The Khmer Rouge were obsessed with self-sufficiency and wouldn't accept foreign aid, meaning that thousands were starved and overworked in the infamous killing fields. All in all, the death toll from the Khmer Rouge regime was estimated to be between 1.5 and 2 million people, or approximately one quarter of Cambodia's population. It's just staggering. So, the Khmer Rouge regime, much like Joseph Stalin, was notoriously paranoid. Purges amongst their ranks were common, and they proved to be their downfall. Some military commanders escaped the purges and defected to Vietnam. One such commander was Hun Sen. Pol Pot was suspicious of Vietnam, which was recently unified following the fall of Saigon and the victory of the North Vietnamese forces in 1975. In 1978, a preemptive invasion of Vietnam was ordered. The Khmer Rouge looted the border town of Ba Chuk, killing everyone living there, which was over 3,000 people. Of course, this enraged the Vietnamese, and they responded by invading Cambodia on Christmas Day 1978. The Khmer Rouge army, weakened by the constant purges, was in no way able to defend themselves, and within just weeks, the Vietnamese arrived at Phnom Penh and took over, ending the atrocious Khmer Rouge regime. The Khmer Rouge weren't finished, though, and they fled to the west of the country to the border region with Thailand. The Vietnamese set up the People's Republic of Kampuchea, effectively a puppet government. The former Khmer Rouge commander Hun Sen was made foreign minister before he became prime minister in 1985. In response, the coalition government of democratic Kampuchea was set up as a government in exile. This had UN backing, who recognised it as the governing authority of Cambodia. It was a very unlikely alliance of the Khmer Rouge, royalists led by Sihanouk, and the Khmer People's National Liberation Front. So yeah, it's all, it's all a bit people's front of Judea, all the new, all the names. In fact, the Khmer Rouge representative to the UN, Fayyan Prasif, was allowed to keep his seat. So peace talks wouldn't start until 1989. On October 23rd, 1991, the day before Like Father Like Clown was first aired, all parties signed up to the Paris Peace Accords. For the first time ever, the UN would take over the running of a country, as Cambodia made the transition to independence and Vietnamese troops withdrew. 
1993, Sayanuk was restored as the constitutional monarch, but all the power was concentrated in the hands of the prime minister. The role was split between Hun Sen and Naradom Rinarid after UN-sponsored elections in 1993 resulted in a hung parliament. In 1997, Hun Sen launched a coup, which resulted in himself becoming the country's sole prime minister. Hun Sen remains in power to this day, and he has been prime minister of Cambodia in some capacity for an astonishing 45 years. The 2003 elections resulted in another stalemate between Hun Sen and Renarid. Sayanuk tried to find a compromise, but was rebuffed. The next year, Sayanuk once again abdicated the throne of Cambodia, but remained politically active until his death in 2012. An estimated 1.2 million people lined the streets for his funeral, and flags were ordered to be flown at one-third mast. Not half-mast, one-third mast. It was that serious. That's a power play right there. Flying your flag even lower. As for Pol Pot, he was ousted by the Khmer Rouge commander Tamok in 1997 and put under house arrest. A year later, a frail Pol Pot apparently died in his sleep, never really facing justice for his awful crimes. Speculation was rife that he feared being handed over to international authorities and committed suicide by overdosing on prescription medicine. The Khmer Rouge allowed reporters to film his body, but he was hastily cremated afterwards. So that's it. That's... That's the uh, rather tragic history of Cambodia and the uh, and the story of the man who's still in power today. But Cambodia is one of those countries where its history can be traced back through its flags. So from 1863, it had a red flag with a blue trim with a white image of Angkor Wat at the centre. The Japanese forces had their own flag during World War Two. Then Cambodia under French rule had pretty much the same flag as it does today. After Lon Nol's coup in 1970, the flag was changed to one which had the white anchor wat on a red canton on a blue field with three stars, clearly influenced by the USA. When the Khmer Rouge took power, they initially reverted it back, but then introduced their own design, a yellow silhouette of anchor wat on a red field. And it was clearly meant to be in the same style as China. The People's Republic of Kampuchea, the puppet state controlled by Vietnam, was essentially the same, but they changed the design of the silhouette. And all the towers are meant to represent different things. And one of them was meant to represent intellectuals, you know, sort of a symbolic statement that, you know, we're not going to kill intellectuals anymore. We're going to embrace them on our flag. Anyway, so then in 1989, Hun Sen changed the design to reintroduce blue, the traditional colour of the monarchy, before it once again reverted to the original flag used at independence in 1993. So there you go. That's Cambodia. Fantastic. And now... Cambodia in the Simpsons. So you know how uh, every time I go, oh, they were in that curling episode. <laughs> um, well, given that they're not really a Winter Olympics-y country, um, and that we didn't, don't get to see that many of the uh, observing but not participating na- uh, nations, I'm not going to be able to use that get-out this time. <laughs> there is only one mention of Cambodia in the Simpsons that I can find. It's on Bart's globe. In season six, episode 16, Bart versus Australia, when he's looking for uh, Southern Hemisphere countries that he can ring up and ask about their plumbing. Uh, And then obviously that segues into Lisa telling him about the magical land of Rand McNally. (laughs) That's fantastic. But but that is it. That, that, That apparently is it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 one thing about the Paris Peace Accords, um, annoyingly, the accords that brought the Vietnam War to the end were also called the Paris Peace Accords, but they were signed about 15 years earlier. Because, um, of course, there is that scene uh, where with uh, with Henry Kissinger, who loses his glasses, who, who says, um, uh, no one must know I dropped them in the toilet. Not I, the man who drafted the Paris Peace Accords. And I love the bit afterwards where we have Kent Brockman saying, and Henry Kissinger was hospitalized earlier after walking into a wall. <laughs> See, that's great. That kind of writing it just, just really pops, doesn't it? Um, mm. I've been uh, I've been watching seasons 11 through 13 of The Simpsons over the last uh, last few days. Good Lord, it falls off a cliff. It really does. Oh, it does. And, and, and that kind of pop and pop and crackle there. Well, snap, crackle, and pop, perhaps, uh, is exactly what's lacking. That that's that's what goes really. Uh, it just gets replaced with mean spiritedness and and sort of Family Guy plot lines. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 I'm pretty sure we've talked about how how the writing changed because you can tell from the early ones. You, you can certainly tell from from this episode. Certainly tell from Light Father, Light Clown that they would rewrite jokes about twenty or thirty times until they really got them to hit. Weren't we talking about the Lincoln Squirrel last week? Yes, uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, what is it? D- Dave Shutton gets the call. Goes now. That's a story. Spinning headline: squirrel that looks like Abraham Lincoln found. <laughs> and, then, and then a few minutes later, you have Kent Brockman saying, "The Lincoln squirrel has been assassinated." <laughs> Stay with the story all night if we have to. And it, it, it's just it's just taking a concept and just adding to it and adding to it and adding to it and getting the timing right and just really knocking people dead with the jokes. It's amazing. And all of that drops off in, see, well, season 11 at the latest, maybe a bit before that. But yeah, yeah, it just just drops off a cliff, as you say. And on that falling off the cliff edge, uh, I think we'll uh, I think we'll wrap up for this time. Don't forget you can find us at retrospectacles.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. Bye.